let's get into the word today as we continue fighting the good fight. Come to me. Come to me. I remember going through uh, my doctoral program, listening to an expert, and it was the section of the doctoral program on counseling uh, in general, family counseling in particular. And um, um, the expert, if I called his name, uh, most of you would know him, but he brought some insight that I thought was particularly helpful. Somebody said, well, I'm raising a house full of teenagers and um, the, the lecture that day was understanding how difficult the, the parent-child dynamic can be at times when uh, uh, hormonal changes and just it can, it can really be tough. And this expert said something that I thought is probably true. It's probably not infallible, but it's probably true. He said, there will be things said that everybody will wish was never said. There will be shouting that people will regret doing. He said, what I have found though, is you can tell that you're still connected with your child this way. And again, I, if, if, if you're the exception, don't go home and think you'd be in despair. But he said, generally speaking, no matter how angry a child is, is if they will still come to you, if they will still let you touch them, if they will still let them hug you, no matter how angry they are, that is a subliminal key that says we're still connected. I thought about that. I thought about my own family. I thought about counseling I'd done through the years. And I thought, you know, I really think that's right. It's not an infallible truth, but I think it's a genuine, uh, genuine truth that's true far more often than not. No matter what mistakes we make with our facial expression or our words, if there is still the ability to touch, there's nothing that can't be overcome. I think we need to understand in our relationship with the Lord, that's often true as well. We go through times where we run from the will of God out of fear, maybe out of anger. Just ask Jonah. Jonah ran from the will of God so angry that God was offering a second chance to the Assyrians that even when he preached and God gave mercy, Jonah was so angry. His response to, I mean, most evangelists would kill for an entire city converting and repenting and God sparing the city judgment. But Jonah was so wrapped up in anger that his response to the Lord was, I knew you were going to do this. You're a merciful God and I knew you were waiting for a chance to show mercy and I am fed up. And the Lord even asked him, he said, Jonah, do you do well to act like this? And Jonah said, yes, I do. I do very well to act like this. Boy, talk about a bad Monday. Sometimes out of exhaustion and fear, we run from the Lord. Ask Elijah. Elijah had a great revival with the people of Israel at Mount Carmel and the enemy seemed to be obliterated. The Lord answered by fire, but the response of Elijah was to flee and get further and further away from where God's presence seemed to be manifesting. And he was so disoriented. He was used to the Lord speaking through the wind and the fire and the shaking of the elements. And all of those things came, but he'd never heard the voice of God, didn't feel the presence of God. He was about to learn something in that moment of desperation. He was about to learn that sometimes the most important thing is not the blowout of power, but the still small voice. It's an important lesson. The lesson he was teaching him is that it's possible for us to carry fatigue, to carry grief, to carry anxiety. 
and not know how to surrender it to the Lord. I have a tendency to think that, um, you know, if, if I'm tired, then what I need to do is quit working. But the Lord had another plan. Let's read about it in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, that's what I'm after. Lord, um, I, I need rest. I need defense. I need respite. I need you to defend me to all of my enemies. He says, come and I will give you rest. And then he tells me how he's going to do it. Take my yoke upon you. No, Lord, you don't understand. I don't need to yoke up again. I need rest. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to that class and teach it. I don't want to go back to food pantry and serve people. I, I, don't, I don't need a yoke. I need a break. But God has this amazing way of saying, if you are weary and heavy laden, he said, I'm going to give you rest, but it's going to be by you working the way I want you to work. In that place, you learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23 says, God does all of this amazing stuff. And in the midst of it, what he's doing is restoring my soul. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me say it one more time. I believe that in this year, 2021, as we have come through 2020, and all of it, I don't know of a year that was ever longed for more than 2021. You know, we all were hoping against hope that the turning of that one calendar page would make everything go away and adjust. And, and, it, and it, it's been a disappointing year for those of us that felt like the turning of the calendar page was going to make everything go away because we've gone into this year and granted, some things are better, some things are worse, but we're still in the challenge. And this is what I have found. Last year was a year, as I have said, of exposing what we are. Now, this year is the opportunity for us to become what we were meant to be. But the thing is, I think the majority of people, and even God's people, have gone into 2021, and if the truth were known, um, you're still carrying immeasurable fatigue. Some of us are handling grief that has been unresolved. I don't know if you realize how many people lost loved ones and did not have a chance to grieve for them in a normal way. Funerals weren't normal. Burials weren't normal. Hospitalizations weren't normal. Nursing homes were not normal. And so there is a tremendous load of grief. Rick Warren said, and Rick is not known as a prophetic person, but Rick Warren said he felt that in 2021, there was going to be a flood of grief that rises up and, and threatens to push people into despair because of the difficulty they had in 2020 that they were not able to grieve over properly. He said, for some of us, losing a loved one is like the days of World War II or Korea where a loved one was dead and presumed dead, but we never had closure because a body was never recovered. Or if it was recovered, it was buried in a foreign land. Fatigue, grief, anxiety on some level is, is plaguing most people. And that means this, loved ones, more than any time before, it may mean that we have got to learn to come to him 
and to take his yoke upon us as never before. Psalm 61.10 reads this way, Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. You see, this is the year that we, we know it and we've done it. It's not like we're rebellious children that aren't cooperating with him. But more than ever before, we need to learn how to take refuge in him. We need to learn how to come to him. We need to learn that no matter what the turmoil is around us, we've got to maintain our touch with him. Because no matter what is wrong, if we can stay in touch, it's a sign of emotional health. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Listen to Romans chapter 13 and the words of Paul. He says, do these things. He's talking about living righteously. This isn't in your notes. You can just listen. Do these things knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. And the day is therefore nearing. Let's rid ourselves therefore of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. That's Romans 13 verses 11 through 14. Max Lucado in his word for the day issued something that we're probably all aware of. He said, more than um, any time in my lifetime, I'm aware of people that have come to the Lord, but there's no change in their lives or very little change. He said, I'm afraid that we're living in an age when most people that come from the Lord, the only thing that's really changed about them is their guilt level has risen. Because they know they're not living the way they ought to be. Now, Max was saying, I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying that their coming to the Lord was not genuine. He says, but we are no longer going to be known as the generation that comes to Jesus to have our needs met and stop there. We are going to be known as the generation that comes to Jesus and lets our lives truly be changed. See, everything's in place for that. Everything's in place. You have become a new creation if you've come to Jesus, but he doesn't want us to live in the, the, the hopeless state of being new creatures, but living the way we used to live. It's like a man I read about that in the 1800s, he, he bought passage on a ship to get from the old country to the new country. He wanted to come and emigrate to America and he did all the paperwork and he knew it was gonna be a, a start from scratch. And he knew that it was going to be several weeks at sea and he bought the lowest passage he could get that was available. And he said, I bought, uh, brought sacks of cheese and bread and the bread became stale. And he said, I ate like an animal all the way over. And he said, as we were pulling in to New York Harbor and saw the Statue of Liberty, he said, I pulled out my last piece of old cheese and bread and everybody was cheering and he said, I thought after these weeks, I've got a chance for some fresh food if I can just get some money. And somebody said, why are you eating that? He said, well, this is the only way I could get all I could afford was the passage. He said, let me see your ticket. And he opened up the ticket and he said, every meal on board ship was provided. You paid for three meals a day. And the man said, I spent all that time eating old bread and hard cheese, not knowing that there was, by my standards, a feast prepared for me all along the way. Loved ones, that's the way a lot of us are. 
It's not that God has not done his work in you. It's not that you're not born again. I'm not here to tell you you're not worthy and you just ought to be thankful for that old stinking cheese. No. I'm saying that God is bringing us to the place where we realize that we are new creatures in him. Now, I'm not a name it and claim it. I'm not a, you know, get saved and get rich kind of guy. But I do know this. Few people live in light of the fullness of God's provision for them. And, and the Christian life is better than it's been for you. Bob George married uh, uh, his beautiful bride from the Soviet Union. And she came with him to America and eventually would become an American citizen. And he said, I wept uncontrollably when I took her to the store and realized that she needed shoes. We got back to America and she needed a pair of shoes. He said she, she was ashamed of her shoes. She wouldn't wear shoes. She went barefoot everywhere she could go. He said, honey, we're in America now. We're going to be going to churches. You can't go barefoot. You've got to wear shoes. He took her into the shoe store and he said she tried on the shoes. Her foot was measured, tried on the shoes, and she began to weep. And he said, what, do you don't like the shoes? We don't have to get these shoes if you don't want the shoes. And she said, these shoes are marvelous. And she began to try to communicate what it was. And loved ones, what had happened is the first time in her life, at least since she was a little girl, they gave her shoes that fit. Shoes were an ordeal to her. They were pain to her. She was better off without the shoes because she had never understood that shoes can be made to fit your feet. And that's the way we are with our Christian experience. We try to cram it in someone else's mold. We try to cram our, you know, size 12s into someone's size eights. And, and we, we wear the shoes because we're supposed to wear the shoes and we're thankful that we're, we have shoes, but we've never understood that God wants you to wear shoes that fit. There's so much more to the Christian life than we realize, but I want to tell you what everything hinges upon, in my opinion, is your ability to come to him, to live from his presence. I believe that the greatest revelation I ever had in my life, I really do, um, I, and I've often said when I realized that there's nothing I can do to make him love me more, there's nothing I can do to make him love me less, I, I think that's, that's the most life-changing. But I think the greatest revelation that I had as a teenager is when I realized that I come boldly to the throne of grace. But now listen, having confidence... But now listen, I grew up in a Pentecostal system and I'm Pentecostal through and through, but I grew up in a Pentecostal system that boldly meant, listen to me, God, you promise this. And if you don't give it to me, you're a liar. And I know you're not a liar. So I'm boldly telling you, this is what I need. And boy, I want to tell you, God doesn't like that. I, I love my children with all my heart and I've always tried to give them anything that they needed and most of the things that they wanted. And if you think that's bad, you ought to see my grandchildren. <laughs> I only have to think they want it. You know, they can't even articulate it. But I would have been devastated if any of my children had said, Daddy, the laws of the state of South Carolina say you've got to take care of me. You have to provide my needs. Oh, that would, they would be technically right. But it would so wound me. Why in the world would they think that they had to demand that I take care of them? When a baby would cry and Ramona and I would be waking up in the night by one of the babies crying, I never, ever said, honey, you need to get in there and take care of the baby. If Sheriff will be out here if we don't. You know? <laughs> no. It was a response of love. Now, loved ones, when it says that we come boldly before the throne of grace, it means that we come with confidence. It means that there's nothing I have to do to earn the right to come into his presence. And there's nothing I have done that will make him unwilling 
to serve me as his child. So the pressure is off. I don't have access to the throne because I've earned it. I don't have access to the throne because I demand it. It's because he has opened the door. Come to me, all you that are laboring and you're heavy laden, I will give you rest. Do it my way, he says, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, I do want to say this, and I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but fellowship and fellowship are not automatic. Um, we, we come to the Lord and we are his child. He loved us when we were unlovable and he calls us to two things. He calls us to fellowship. He calls us to intimacy with him. And then he says, follow me. But I have found in the life of most of us that either fellowship with God or fellowship of God is not something that happens automatically. In fact, you and I, you guys with me? Okay. Thank you for praying for my eye. I can see more of you and you, you can't get away with not agreeing with me <laughs> nearly as much. Thank you for your prayers. But we've got to understand that there will be times when we always have the opportunity to step back. We always have the opportunity to say no. And we've got to be on guard against that. Listen to what happened in Luke 6, verses 66 through 69. Jesus had been doing some pretty tough teaching. And for every pastor in America that says, if it's a real prophetic word, it won't be hurtful or it won't be, you know, corrective. Or if it's a pastor that really loves you, he'll never offend you. I would just point you to Jesus where he preached some doctrine that was so tough, people began to leave. This is what it says. After this, meaning after his teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus uh, said to the 12. Now, if he had been a modern day pastor, what he might've done is said, I'd like to walk back that statement. I'd like to issue a retraction on what I said. But as they were leaving, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Jesus, when he told the story of the soil, he said, now there's going to be some soil that's going to be good soil, it's going to produce fruit. He said, but there's going to be some soil that is so hard that no sooner does the seed land on it, than a bird comes and eats it because it has no depth at all. He said, there's going to be other seed that will sprout, but it has no depth of root. And all it's going to take is a hot day and it will lose its life and dissipate. He said, then there's some that falls on good ground and it's on its way to producing fruit, but it gets sidetracked by weeds and by things that shouldn't be growing there. He said in the explanation of it, he said, that's the way some people are with troubles and cares of the day. He says, nothing ever grows fruitful in your life because you can't get past your offense with God. You can't get past the battle that you're facing. Loved ones, the devil will see to it that there's always something in your life that will make you disappointed with God. The devil will see to it that there's always something in your life so that you get mad with God. It, and, and the easy thing is, is there's always going to be something that gets you mad with the preacher or mad with the church or mad with your spouse. There's always going to be weeds contending for the nourishment that was designed to grow your soul. And he said, you are going to have to understand there are going to be days when you want to leave and you have to decide, am I going to stay? And Simon Peter, with all of the bad things that he said from time to time, like we all do. He got it right this time. He said, Lord, this is tough teaching and we don't understand all of it, but I know this life comes from you, not death. Hope comes from you, not despair. I may not be able to solve every problem, but I'm not going to get it solved over there. He learned that even though Irma Bombeck said that grass 
is always, she said, it's true. Grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, uh, but it's usually just because the septic tank is there. Here's the central thought. God delights in the process of redeeming our lives. He is teaching us to process as we continue to approach ultimate restoration in heaven. And loved ones, I've said this so many times, but I want to remind you, we are learning to make peace with our past. Now that doesn't mean we solve everything. But the past no longer weighs us down and cripples us and keeps us from going forward. We have to make peace with our past. And then having made peace with our past, either resolving it or at least finding how to live with it, we find purpose in our present. I am alive today for a reason. I was born in the 20th century instead of the 19th century for a reason. I, am, I was born on the day I was born for a reason because there's something I'm called to do that I couldn't do if I was born 20 years later or 20 years earlier. You are crafted in God's hand and not only does he give you the grace to make peace with your past, but he gives you the ability to find purpose in your present. And when we are walking with him, he gives us a way to receive promise for our future. Now, let me, before I kind of wrap this up with some um, Christian life directives, um, I, I want to basically explain, explain Satan's distortions and God's desire. You got to understand that. When we talk about Satan's distortions, if you are having an issue whether it manifests as anger with God or disappointment with God or, or confusion or cynicism or consternation, one of the things the enemy likes to do is he wants you to see Abba as the hard man. You remember I've preached about that, the, the story of the three men, one received five talents, one, two, one, one. And they were, each of them were, um, what's the word, productive to the degree that they understood the master. And uh, the one that had five talents doubled it. Well done, good and faithful servant. The one that had two doubled it. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the one that had one, he had the same opportunity to have increase as the other guys. But this is what he said. He said, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were hard to serve. And so I was so afraid of messing up, I just took my talent and buried it. So here's what you gave me. I, I wasn't going to take any chances because you're a hard man. And the Lord said, if I was a hard man, you should have at least taken my talent and put it in the bank and let it earn interest. And he, he, was, under, he was helping us understand something that I think every Christian needs to come to grips with sooner or later. You are going to either see father for who he is or the devil is going to distort your view and you're going to see him as a hard man. Nobody else in the story thought he was a hard man. Nobody else in the story thought he was um, um, uh, absolutely impossible to serve. You see, God is not a hard man. Now, he's a just God and he, he's, not a, he's, not a, he's not a mushy God in the sense of, well, whatever you want will be fine. He is the creator and ruler and sustainer of the universe but he's not a hard man. You say, how do you know he's not a hard man? Because you are still breathing. I, I deserve to be a grease spot on I-26, <coughs> but I'm, I'm living, I'm alive. And it, I find that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And his faithfulness is great and goes on and on and on and on. The first thing, if the enemy can get you to fear God as a hard man, we need to fear God. The last thing we need to do is play games with God. We don't want to be presumptuous with God. But the enemy wants you to absolutely fear him as a hard man 
and forget that he knew us before he called us. He loved us, the Bible says, when we were unlovable and he chose us before the world even existed. The second lie of the enemy is he wants us to see Abba as the God who is unreachable. All right, well, he's, he, maybe he's not a hard man, but I can't get to him. He's way off out there. Do you know that when the angels announced Jesus, the nickname they gave him, it wasn't his formal name. His name was Jesus. Jesus, which meant Savior. He was Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph, was his name. But they said, he shall be called Emmanuel. You want to understand this Jesus who saves you from his sins? Understand he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, for 400 years of non-canonical prophets. Now, it's not true that there were no prophets between Malachi and Matthew. We know from Jewish history there were prophets, there were miracles, but it was nothing like it was in the years before. There were no canonical or no writing prophets. That list ended with Malachi and maybe a couple of other prophets right there with Malachi. So, so the, the idea was that God has withdrawn. God's not talking to us anymore. And when Jesus came, the angel said, one thing you need to understand, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's intended to be. This is the way it will be now. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not out there unreachable. He's the God who is nearer to you than your next breath. And to be sure, if you're not convinced of it, he says things like this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God wants you to know he's not a hard man and God wants you to know that he is near you because the, that leads to the third thing. The enemy wants us to see Abba as the God who demands works instead of offering grace and mercy. Loved ones, some of us grew up and it's not that the church was bad. It's not that the setting was bad. It's not that the atmosphere was bad. But some of us grew up in a setting where you just, it was just a hair's breadth of difference between you going to heaven and you going to hell. You prayed that Jesus came at the right moment because if he came in a moment of road rage, you were left behind to face the Antichrist. You know, uh, I, I mean, I mean, really, we, we were, we were raised with the mindset that he's coming back for the righteous and holy, which is true. And only the righteous and holy are going to go to heaven. And that's true. But we were not clearly taught that we're righteous and holy because of his work, not because of our work. I believe in holy living. I do. But there, I, I, I alternated growing up between hopelessness and happiness depending on if a pretty girl walked in front of me. I slipped into hopelessness because of my thoughts, you know. And some of you are saying, what is he talking about? Don't act so innocent. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Many of us were presented the father either as a hard man or an unreachable one or as a God who said, oh yeah, you can come. Whosoever will may come. All you got to do is bat a thousand. All you got to do is be perfect. And I grew up thinking that he was the God that demanded works instead of offering grace and mercy. I grew up believing that I was saved. And this wasn't what my pastor taught. This is just what the atmosphere communicated. I grew up thinking that I'm saved by grace, but I stay saved by works. But this is what the scripture says. I am saved by grace through faith. In other words, faith is the medium through which grace works. I believe, that's faith, that I receive his grace not by works. Not by works. Nothing could be clearer. And you say, well, John the baptizer, he said to the crowds, bring forth works fit for repentance. If, if, if works don't matter, then why did he say bring forth works fit for repentance? Loved ones, what John the Baptist was saying was simply this. 
If you're coming to God, be sure that you show you have repented. He wasn't saying do this, 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 and this. Now he did give some examples, but he was saying, don't just come in name only, but come showing by the works of your life <coughs> that you are serious about this grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. That's what Paul said. Now let's talk about grace and mercy like we have over and over again for 90 seconds. Grace is God's good will toward me. We call it unmerited favor, but it's so much more than that. Grace is God's goodwill toward me. Whosoever will may come. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Unmerited favor. But it's also his good work in me. His good will toward me and his good uh, his goodwill toward me and his good work in me. In other words, when he picks me up out of the miry clay, he not only shows his goodwill toward me by picking me up, he picks me up and he carries me along. That's what grace is. Grace is God saying, I accept you and I will help you. Grace is God saying, you can't be what you ought to be, but I will make you what you ought to be. I will make you what you ought to be and I will give you the strength to do everything I call you to do. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's like you've reached the credit limit on your card and you don't know it and then somebody behind you with one of those mystical cards that have, you know, demon signs on it and everything with no credit limit, you know, they could buy the universe. They say, put it on my account, you know. I mean, it's, it's that kind of grace, I will help you and I will lift you. I will declare you to be what you can't declare yourself to be. And I will be sure that you make it all the way to the end. That's grace. But he also gives us mercy. Grace involves my receiving of what I do not deserve. Grace says, Stephen, you can have what you do not deserve. And mercy says, and you will not get what you do deserve. Grace, I can have what I don't deserve. Mercy, I don't get what I do deserve. He gives hope to hopeless situations. There's a little obscure passage that comes from Isaiah. Um, is this in your notes, Matthew 12, 20? Okay, there's a, an obscure passage. Um, it says, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Uh, King James says something like this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. And those are two beautiful pictures that Isaiah had used talking about the restoration of Israel. But this, the, the idea of the bruised reed, the way papyrus was made, the way they wrote is reeds were taken and spread out and dried and it was turned into the paper basically that they would use to make scrolls. But the thing about it is the reed could not be broken. It could not be bent because if it was bent, it would not roll properly or it would not absorb the writing material properly. So when they were gathering reeds for their purpose of being written upon, one that was broken, they would throw away. They would just throw it away and say it's useless and they might use it for fire after it dried out. But he said, your life can be like that broken reed. You can have made mistakes that seem terminal. You can have wasted years. You can seem like nothing's ever worked out right and you've made one mistake after another. But this is what it says of Messiah. He won't throw you away because you're broken. You're still usable to him. He still has a purpose for you. I know I say this a lot, but that verse that we love, it's the number one refrigerator magnet in all of America. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans to bless you, to give you a destiny, to give you a hope and a future not to harm you. You've got to remember that precious promise that we all claim was given to people that had failed God so profoundly, they were losing everything. They were losing their nation. They were losing their temple. They were losing their riches. They were losing their land. But God said, I can still do something with you. And then it says, uh, 
a smoking flax. He will not quench. I love the way the, the living Bible puts it. He will not put out the smallest hope. And it was the idea of a flame. Somebody had been trying to build a fire, but it just wouldn't catch. It just wouldn't catch. You know what it's like in, in rangers. I don't know if they still do this, but I, I had to pass a test in rangers. I had to start a fire with one match. And I practiced for weeks starting a fire with one match. When I started, I used a couple of fire blocks. I used sawdust. I used some sticks, about a half a quart of lighter fluid. And, I mean, I tried everything. And it took, me, it took me weeks to be able to light a fire with one match. And I remember when I had my test and I went to, to, to light with one match, it was almost gone. I said, it's not going to work. I'm not going to get my badge. And I got down on my belly and I put my face right up to it and I went... And I began to blow and that flame began to flicker. And my, my buddy Randy said, oh, this, this ain't going to work. Just give it up. There'll be a camp out next quarter. You know, he said, it's not going to work. And all of a sudden it flickered and it caught and it began to burn. God said, that's the way your work is. You may feel like all of your fire has gone out. You may feel that what once burned bright in you is lost. But like he told Timothy, he says, fan into flame the gift of God because it's never too late for the spirit of God to blow the wind of his life on your life. Now that's what the enemy wants to do. God's a hard man. God is a God that's unreachable or he's a God that sets the standard so high that you can never attain it. But this is his desire. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Yeah. Or another way of translating that, or as some people might think. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, he says, a lot of times we'll be tempted to look at the world and say it's out of control. And if God were in control, why does he allow this? If God was good, why does he allow that? It's because he loves us so much. He's letting things go further than we understand. I want to tell you this world, you say, pastor, I feel like this world is out of control. No, it's not out of control. It's past our point of understanding how merciful God is. John 6, 65, our coming to him, it begins with an invitation from the Father. First of all, I want you to understand, you say, okay, pastor, you're telling me to come to the Lord. I want you to understand how important this is. You can't even know that you can come to the Lord without the invitation of the Father. You can't even say yes without the invitation of the Father. And, and don't misunderstand this. That initial response is often just purely from a needs-based mentality. There's nothing wrong to come to Jesus on the basis of needs. But understand that that is probably the lowest form of devotion you'll ever show to him. Listen to what Jesus said in John 7, and then we'll begin to land this plane. On the last day, the climax of the festival... Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. Now, if Jesus had said this on the first day of the festival, I guarantee you almost everybody that heard him would have said, hey, that's why we're here for the feast. Everything we need is going to be met here in the feast. I'm going to get the t-shirt. I'm going to get the magic anointing oil. That's why we have feasts. I'm here for the feast. That's why Jesus will sometimes, hear me loved ones, Jesus will sometimes wait till you have exhausted all of your resources. That's why sometimes he doesn't even speak till the last day of the feast. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Look, you've tried everything. You've tried all the structure. You've tried all that religion itself can offer. But if you're still thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. 
For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. And Matthew 16, 24, it just tells us that this coming is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process. Jesus makes it clear. Once you come to him, you have not arrived. But when you come to him, you have begun a journey of completeness. Now, what are the Christian life lessons? There's some quick ones. Number one, when I tell you to come to Jesus, the initial approach is designed to lift our burden. He says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Um, he ministered to Elijah's needs in the flesh before he ministered to his needs in the spirit or soul. And it's interesting. Paul was such a jerk before he came to Jesus. Now he was a phenomenal man. I mean, he was a phenomenal man, but he was, he was a persecutor. His reputation was that he wanted to wipe out all of Christianity and he was making some men uh, go to prison. Some were killed. Some women were made widows because of Paul. And some children were made orphans because of him. And when Jesus approached him, now let me tell you the way I think Jesus should have approached him. Saul! I'm talking to you. How many Saul's do you think are on this road? Don't look around. Look at me. Look at me. Send my men to the death camps, will you? Make my precious handmaidens widows, will you? Make these precious children ordens, uh, orphans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's time for us to have a little meeting right here on the Damascus Road. Now, that's, that's, that's logical. This is a John Wayne approach. But do you know what Jesus said? King James says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You know what that is in modern English? He was saying, Paul, you are wearing yourself out resisting the drawing of the spirit. I mean, he, here he was, a murderer, a persecutor, a blasphemer. And Jesus says, Paul, I want you to know you need to rest. You are wearing yourself out. And if you'll come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. You see, when we come to Jesus, we come, most of us come either because of sin or sorrow. We come because of guilt or because of grief. And I want to tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord because of guilt or grief, sin and sorrow. But that's only the start. When you came to Jesus and he gave you relief Understand, he also wants to give you release. Now, here's the second life lesson. Our initial response in our flesh is to resist approaching him. Even when we see him, even when we hear the call, our initial response is usually to resist. Sometimes we think we're unworthy. Like Peter, whenever Jesus gave Peter that miraculous catch of fish, and said, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. What was Peter's response? Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That was true. That was true. And that speaks of the nobility in Peter. He said, Lord, I'm not going to come to you just because of my problem. But he needed to come to Jesus because of his problem. Isaiah, who was uh, already a righteous man, already a prophet of God, uh, to some extent at least, when he finally saw the Lord high and lifted up and the glory of his presence and his train filled the temple, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am an unclean man. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a people. Everybody around me are just as unclean as I am. And the tendency when we really see the Lord is to think I'm unworthy but may it never be said that we're unwilling. Near the end of Jesus' life, he looked from the Mount of Olives down on the city of Jerusalem, and he said this, he said, oh, Jerusalem. See, I, I, the Gospel of John, I, I should, I'm not gonna try to give the references, I'll, I'll forget them. But 
says that Jesus went to Jerusalem at least four times, maybe as many as six times, depending on how you combine some events. And every time he went to Jerusalem, except the first time when he was a child, taking that out of the picture, every time he went, it was a bad encounter. Jerusalem wanted to destroy him. At first they resisted him and argued with him. And finally they want to kill him. And he looks over the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you together under my wings as a hen gathers her little children. I wanted to pull you close. And then, but what did he say? But, but the grid went out. Wi-Fi went out and we couldn't live stream. We had plans, but, you know, we ran out of tickets. No, all of that could have been overcomable. But you know what he said? He said, but you were not willing. He said this, this is the hour of your visitation and you have no clue that you've just missed it because you were unwilling. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. Do you know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees worked against him? And it took them coming together to be able to arrest Jesus, plus the timing of the Father. But this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, I've come that you might have life. Saying this to his mortal enemies, I've come that you might have life. And then the saddest verse in the New Testament probably is he said, but you were not willing. You were not willing. So the initial response is designed to lift our burden, but the initial response of our flesh, we have to overcome the tendency to resist it. Number three, even if we surrender to Jesus, we still often find ourselves serving him in the strength of the flesh. That's what religion will do. Now, I don't like these, you know, a lot of people send things around why I have you know, why I love Jesus, but hate religion. You got to be careful. Most of those I've listened to, what they're really saying is why I love Jesus, but hate the church. And that's a dangerous approach to take. But religion in and of itself, apart from Jesus can be very damaging. And so what we have in this day and age is that people say, yes, I love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus, but I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm not going to I'm not going to serve the church. I'm not going to serve other people. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going as they used to sing back in the seventies. I want to tell you, it's little better to serve Jesus in the strength of the flesh than it is to not serve Jesus at all. Number four, our approach doesn't have to be perfect or fully developed. Um, Jesus said to the father with the demonized son, all things are possible if you believe. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that was, that was enough for Jesus. That was enough for Jesus. I think that's why Jesus, or one of the reasons why Jesus welcomed children so much. Children didn't have deep theology. It's like a friend of mine in Illinois where I used to pastor said on Easter, um, one of the children was trying to relate um, uh, in a, during a program, what Easter meant. And he said, Easter is when we celebrate, they killed Jesus and they put him in the, in the cave, but Jesus was dead, but he came out. And if he saw his shadow, we have six more weeks of winter. <laughs> well, that was closer than some people's theology. I know that. Our theology doesn't have to be perfect. Our understanding doesn't have to be perfect. Our faith doesn't have to be perfect. That's why we come to him as we need him. I think that's why the common people heard him gladly. Now here is the last thing and we're done. The concept of go and come is part of coming to him. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, he's speaking to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus wants us to understand that when we come to him, there's always the dynamic of going. It's, it's not just come to me and your problems are over. Now this doesn't mean 
that works has anything to do with it. But let me make these two statements that may clarify. When I say that we come, but we also go, that means that we don't leave our baggage unattended. Now, when we come to Jesus, some of our old past is dealt with instantaneously. You know what I mean. When you come to Jesus, some things just fell away instantly. It's all forgiven instantly. But some things are dealt with as we are able. That's why you're so happy and everything's great. You've been serving Jesus for nine months and it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then all of a sudden you feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit over something in your life that is not pleasing to him. And you feel not condemnation, that's always from the devil, but conviction. Condemnation is general, it's vague, it's hopeless. Conviction is specific, it's, it's accurate, and it always offers a hope, always a way out. But whenever that conviction hits, you say, Lord, I've been serving you for nine months. Why haven't you brought this up before? Lord, if I, what else in my life is not pleasing to you? Lord, why have you waited nine months until now for me to deal with this? Well, and the answer is very simple. You weren't ready to deal with it yet. You weren't ready to deal with it yet. That's why God orchestrated the cities in order that Israel would conquer. He even brought them in an indirect route so they wouldn't have to face their, their fiercest, in, fiercest enemies first. See, God knows you're not ready for the cities of Philistia, but you're ready. You're ready for Jericho. You're ready for Gibeah. You're ready for Ai. You're ready for these other cities. And it's a process. And that's why we need to understand we'll never outgrow the need to come to Jesus. We don't leave our baggage unattended. Now he doesn't say, come to me and then go fix your life. But understand, when you come to him, he's going to empower you to deal with all of the stuff that you brought along. The second and last thing is this. That means we are being restored, not just forgiven. When you come to Jesus, it's all forgiven. It's all forgiven. But he wants to do more than forgive. He wants to restore Okay, we're, we're out of time for all intents and purposes. Um, but this is what I want to do. I want to open the altars today. I'm not going to say, okay, now everybody that's an adulterer, come. Now everybody that's a fornicator, come. Everybody that's a thief, come. We're not going to do that. But loved ones, I do believe that what I referred to earlier is right. It may not even be an overt sin that you're struggling with. It may not be something that you're doing wrong, but I said at the beginning of our time together, um, I think many of us, if not all of us on some level are dealing with fatigue, grief, anxiety on some level. You are laboring to the best of your ability, but you are weary and you're heavy laden. And Jesus is saying, come to me and you will find rest for your soul. You remember we said 2021, we're rebuilding what the enemy has tried to break. And I believe as we go forward, and you know what? You're going to go forward. You're going to win. You're going to be successful. You are going to be more than conquerors through him that loved us. I believe that with all of my heart. But what he wants us to understand is we do it from his presence. We do it from his lap. So what the altar call today is, now if you have sin, bring it to him. We, that's a great promise we have. We bring our sin to him and he deals with it. But it may be that you are struggling with stuff, with feelings, with an anxiety, and you may not even be able to articulate or identify exactly what it is. We're in an age, we're in an age of crisis. We're in an age of tension.
We're in an age of grief. We're in an age of fatigue more than any of us have faced in our lives, at least here in America. He says, come to me. And I want us today to begin a journey of learning to come to him. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we're asking you to help us today. We, we are inviting some to come to the altar area. I know there's not a lot of room here today, but we're inviting some to come that will just bring their burdens to the Lord and learn how to leave it there. There are some that will go out into the foyer and pray with ministry teams there. There are some at home that are watching alone or in a small group. And the, Lord, the assurance is that you'll come to them right where they are as well. There's an old song we used to sing, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Thank you that we can bring our burden to the Lord. Thank you for that song that says burdens are lifted at Calvary. Thank you for that song that says there's room at the cross for you. Though millions, billions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. So we want to come and we do it in Jesus' name. 